Here we have reparative reasoning, an inductive <laughs> approach to religious conflict. Now, what is reparative reasoning? Reparative reasoning is a method of textual analysis that seeks, when faced with a given conflict, to repair underlying logical problems. It does this by reconstructing the kinds of questions being asked and answered, rather than taking the question for granted and attending only to the variety of answers given. This is not a matter of identifying positions, but of showing how certain habits of thinking are answers <coughs> to questions. Now, as it's been mentioned, this is based on the philosophy of Charles S. Peirce. Peirce is a somewhat obscure figure who is uh, known mainly as the founder of pragmatic philosophy in the United States. He lived between 1839 and 1914. He's also known somewhat as the founder or a founder of semiotics, which is uh, a discipline that involves signs and signifiers of meaning as a way of understanding texts and other forms of communication. Uh, I also feel uh, the need to include that he is a bit of a misunderstood genius and uh, had a notoriously difficult personality and uh, was responsible for his own problems to a certain extent, uh, along with some bad luck in his life. So it's part of the reason he's more obscure than he needs to be. But uh, in this case, we're going to be using him in three different ways. First of all, we're going to use him to understand the meaning of abductive logic, uh, which is primarily associated with him. We're also going to use him to identify certain binary oppositions in arguments given in the theological debate surrounding women's ordination. Finally, we will also understand the relationship of certain symbols and communities based on his semiotic logic. Now, what is abductive logic? Abductive logic is a kind of logical inference described by Peirce as guessing, which refers to the process of arriving at an explanatory hypothesis, allows inferring A as an explanation of B, for example. Now, this stands in opposition to the two better-known forms of syllogism, deduction and induction. Deduction, which is uh, deriving B from A, only where B is a formal consequence of A. And induction, which is deriving, inferring B from A, where B does not follow necessarily from A. Now, we'll just leave that as a B for the time being. Uh, now, binary oppositions. These are, quite simply, a relation between two opposing concepts could be anything. Yeah, you hear it in arguments all the time. It's essentially saying that something is better than something else. It's that simple. Now, a binary opposition can be explicit or it can be implicit. You could say apple juice is better than orange juice, explicit. Or you can say orange juice is delicious, which is implicitly referring that orange juice is better than not orange juice. Now, there's such a thing as an errant binary defined as Peirce's logic, which is uh, something that offers a distinction that extends beyond its relevant context. Now, an example of an errant binary is this. For example, in the uh, UK, you have finishing your dinner uh, at the guest of a friend's home. Now, here you have a binary between finishing your dinner and being a good guest, appearing respectful, and not finishing your dinner and appearing wasteful. Now, this is a relevant binary in the case of this country and this culture. But if you were to go to, say, China then you have finishing your dinner as a sign of gluttony and not finishing your dinner as a sign of respect. Now, essentially, you just have a, a, a just differentiation between context that is relevant and context that is irrelevant. It's that simple. Now, moving on to another application of Peirce's thought in this method, we have semiotics. Now, I'm just going to give a very brief explanation of the semiotic system of Peirce. It revised quite a bit during his lifetime, but for the purposes of this method, all we need to know is that semiotics is a discipline that trades in signs and symbols as keys to the meaning of a text. And for Peirce, all meaning is the product of a triune semiotic relationship. Now, this relationship is constituted of an object, 
which is a thing, a sign, which is something that stands in for that thing, and an interpretant, which is a uniquely Persian notion, which is the context in which that sign has meaning. As you can get an idea, this helps us di distinguish between these sort of relevant and irrelevant contexts of a binary as to whether it's a errant binary or an appropriate binary. Now, coming back to the idea of reparative reasoning, we're basing this on Peirce's definition of a rule of reasoning as simply a set of signs arranged for the purposes of generating a certain interpretation in a certain setting, advancing an argument. It is also predicated on Peirce's belief that an argument is the product of a certain habit of mind, a habit that operates according to unconscious rules, extends from and expresses itself in the form of semiotic units, and takes meaning relative to a given community of interpreters. Now here we have what I brought up originally, which is the equation of reparative reasoning as a transition from a problematic text, X, to a corrected but vague text, Y, to a corrected but community-specific text, P. Now, as we apply this to the issue of women's ordination in the Church of England, I'm going to substitute the variables X, Y, and P here for X equals... No, you can't read this, but I'll read it aloud. <laughs> Errant rules of reasoning found in the transcript of the speeches that were given in the debate over women's ordination on the 11th of November, 1992, in the General Synod of the Church of England. This is where the issue came to a head, and when the legislation that formally allowed women to be priests was passed. Now, in the place of why, we have the identification of errant binaries among arguments over women's ordination categorized fourfold. We have, first off, problematic arguments that were in favor of the legislation. Secondly, problematic arguments that were opposed to the legislation. Thirdly, problematic arguments that used unity as their primary concern. And fourthly, arguments that recognize errant rules of reasoning as a problem of the tension of the debate and that can be used as potential sources to repair the tension. Now this brings us to group P, which is applying the reparative arguments to use Anglican traditions to suggest solutions to the tension in the debate. There are going to be a couple of examples that I'll give here at the end. Now, before we can get in specifically to applying this method to the transcript of the speeches given on the evening of the 11th November, 1992, I think a bit of historical background is helpful at this point, just to give you an idea of the events that brought about the controversy over women's ordination and a bit about where the issue stands today. The first recorded reference to women in Anglican ministry dates from 1920, a statement of support from the Lambeth Conference that year for the idea of women deacons. On the 25th of January, 1944, Florence Lee Tim Oy was ordained as the communion's first woman priest, her title having been conferred by the Bishop of Hong Kong as a result of the wartime shortage of priests in Southeast Asia. After the war ended and as male candidates again became available, she stepped down from her position. By 1968, pressure to ordain women had reached such a point among some of the provinces of the Anglican Communion that Resolution 35 of the Lambert's Conference that year requested the churches to draft reports on the state of the issue, effectively postponing further communion-wide discussion until the Anglican Consultative Council meeting of 1973. As the 70s progressed, 12 member churches affirmed their support for women's ordination, including the national churches of New Zealand, Canada, and the United States which prompted the Lambeth Conference of 1978 to state that it declares its acceptance of those member churches which now ordain women, 
and urges that they respect the convictions of those provinces and dioceses which do not. The topic remained contentious throughout the 1980s, and at Lambeth in 1988, Archbishop Ronald Runcie gave it special consideration in his opening address, The Nature of the Unity We, speak, we Seek. The conference also reaffirmed in its first resolution that year the principle of provincial autonomy, reacting to genuine concern that churches, some of them, might break from the communion over the issue. None ever did. In 1989, the churches of New Zealand and the United States each consecrated its first woman bishop, and so an atmosphere of controversy prevailed in the period leading up to the Church of England Synod vote over the legislation in 1992. In the years since this debate, the conversation on women's ordination has shifted somewhat, as questions on women in the episcopate and on the period of reception called for in the Episcopal Ministry Act of Synod 1993 have come to the fore. The act in question provides arrangements for episcopal care for those who oppose ordaining women, and has been criticized by advocacy, advocacy, ah, advocacy groups such as Watch, Women in the Church, for its implied hesitancy over the validity of the legislation. <coughs> by most accounts, however, but not all, the period of reception has been a smooth one, and the number of women priests in England has increased from 34 in 1994 to roughly <coughs> 2,500 today, a ratio of nearly one woman priest for every four overall. Ian Jones, in his Women in the Priesthood in the Church of England, 10 years on, has made the case that a clear majority of clergy and lay respondents agree with the decision of 1992. Although Roger Beckwith of the conservative group Reform has criticized Jones' methodology as failing to accurately reflect sentiments across the country as a whole. As of 2000, there were still an estimated 1,000 congregations that would not accept women priests, and the Church of England has yet to consecrate a woman bishop. Now, as I may use an example of our neighbor here within our property, we have Pusey House, which, uh, if anything, can testify to uh, this issue still being somewhat of a live one within the Anglican Communion. Not everyone did accept the decision that was made in 1992, and uh, the fact that 20 years almost have passed since this issue doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't still lingering resentment or tension over the issue. Moreover, when you read the transcript of the speeches that were given on the day of the vote, you see any number of different arguments with different foundations that were brought in to support either position on the legislation. Uh, this includes arguments ranging from the authority of the Bible and basing uh, the issue of women's ordination to reason itself, to the ecclesiastical status of the church hierarchy, to ecumenical relations. And oftentimes, whatever position the speaker happened to be arguing for or against, this basis was brought in as a unilateral support for this position, with the effect that to be against that position meant being against all these other associations as well. Now, what we can use purse for is being able to separate an argument from the context in which it's relevant or irrelevant. Now, by doing this, our first step is to categorize these arguments, which I said is breaking it down into the four categories. Now, I don't have time in the 20 minutes to get into an example from each category, but what I will do is give you an example of a problematic argument and a reparative argument. Now, this problematic argument just happens to be the first one that was given. This was given by Archbishop George Carey, the keynote speaker for the debate. And this uh, argument happened to be in favor of women's ordination, and it goes a little something like this. The Church of England is no stranger to days of decision like this. At such times, we are caught between faith and fear, between the excitement of a new experience and the fear of the risks involved. These fears, which in some ways we all share, are not well-grounded. Now, obviously, you can see first things first that we have a binary here, a binary between faith and fear. 
Now, this binary, in his case, is being used to justify voting in favor of women's ordination. But there are actually four problems with his arguments here that thank you, thanks to Peirce's reparative reasoning and his abductive logic, we can identify. The first is that his faith-fear binary is invalid. If you imagine the words, if you, sorry, if you examine the words faith and fear, you can imagine any number of scenarios in which those meanings can overlap. It's not necessarily that you can either only experience fear or faith. There are plenty of examples that anyone can imagine in which both of these emotions are equally held simultaneously, or at least held in some measure at the same time. The second problem is that the argument does not provide us with a rule for when his binary is applied. He does write days of decision like this, but as days of decision is not specified, nor is the definition of faith or fear specified, we then have a third problem, which is that the lack of a defined context implies that the faith-fear binary is always to be the only interpretive criterion for deciding whether women can be priests. Now, the fourth problem is tied in with the original three, which is that, pardon me, the effect on the debate is that the fears aren't well-grounded, appears to disregard those who are against ordination as having arguments that are based on fear. The fact that he doesn't specify the context or allow us to interpret him in a certain way limits our options for interpreting him and reduces the argument to a binary opposition between faith, supporting women's ordination, fear, opposing it. Now, there are examples that could be given that were against women's ordination that were the same sort of thing. And it's interesting when you read the transcript of the debate because you hear really inflammatory phrases like theological mayhem and destroying the very foundations of the church. I, uh, I would say that uh, some of the most dire phrases were used in opposition to women's ordination. There was one particular speech that brought in six different foundations that were all unilaterally in support of voting against women's ordination, with the idea that if you voted against it, the idea of God's authority on earth was somehow going to be completely undermined. And it isn't, mind you, that the position against women's ordination is the problem. It's the way in which the arguments are framed that allow or do not allow for certain discussions. Now, that being said, we can now turn to an example of what I would categorize as a reparative argument. Now, the first of these is from Margaret Laird, who spoke against women's ordination. We need to be aware of certain 17th and 18th century historians who promoted their own interpretations of the Church of England, claiming that it was an innovation with unrestricted authority to determine its own faith and order. They distorted the intention of many of the original English reformers who wished to return to faith as revealed in Scripture and to the received traditions of the early Church. Now, we do have a binary here. And as I said, there's nothing wrong with binaries. We have a binary between a certain way of doing history, a way that conceives of theology as a fresh start in which theologians can promote their own interpretations as an innovation with unrestricted authority, or doing theology as being aware of certain previous traditions, essentially. Now, the key thing here is that she is performing the type of historiography she espouses, drawing from a usable Anglican past to find an interpretive criterion in deciding the issue. Now, I feel as though I should speak a bit more about why this is considered to be a reparative argument. So allow me to turn to what I wrote here. For one thing, the recognition of a usable past is different from simply arguing tradition demands that we vote X on the legislation. And her point is useful in that a usable Anglican past may help repair some of the unproductive and ahistorical binaries of the debate, i.e. faith versus fear. Now, a second argument that can be considered reparative is in favor of women's ordination. 
And this is from the Bishop Stephen Sykes, who wrote, spoke in support of the ordination. Our Anglican tradition permits us to judge, as Richard Hooker said, of times and seasons, that now as a new-grown occasion, when church people may affirm the proposal before us as fully consistent with the faith of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, what's interesting about this is that he has an opposing interpretation of Anglican tradition that supports women's ordination, whereas she also draws from Anglican tradition to oppose it. But what's nice about their arguments is that within the argument themselves, each presents a rule of reasoning that gives us an idea of how to interpret them. It doesn't limit our options. It promotes the discussion and has an interpretive criteria that goes beyond the surface position of for or against. Now, don't have a lot of time to, unfortunately, get into the details of everything, but uh, what you can do by separating the arguments between problematic and reparative is you can diagnose the problem uh, by, just for one thing, counting the number of errant binaries that were given in this transcript. And uh, by far the single most commonly found errant binary within this debate was a binary between secular and Anglican. Oftentimes, on either side of the issue, particularly from those opposed, the position of the opponent in the debate was described as not really Anglican. It was secular. It was informed from wider society, but it wasn't really Anglican. Therefore, you had a binary between an ex mutually exclusive beliefs that are derived from the church, beliefs that are derived from wider society. And um, by far, seeing as how this was not given rules of interpretation for us, we weren't given when reading this, um, uh, this is the most commonly found errant binary in the debate. So, therefore, by categorizing the arguments in this way, we can point to that as a potential diagnosis of the problem. Now, doing a bit of research, you trace back this binary between secular and Anglican. And uh, I should mention also that among those opposed, the groups divided, tended to divide into two camps. You had the Anglo-Catholic side and the Reformed side, each of which used this secular Anglican binary in opposition to the legislation. But uh, tracing the history of the Anglican faith back a bit, you can see as well that the Anglican secular binary is in large part derived first and foremost to the Oxford movement, which happened, of course, here in Oxford, and uh, had a home in, uh, among others, uh, Cardinal Newman, who became a Catholic, but uh, also uh, Pusey, whose Pusey House is uh, named. And um, by looking back into the tradition and trying to examine the roots of this binary, we can see that the Oxford movement was a specific uh, sticking point and remains so today. Now, what I would argue, and I do point to this in my conclusion, is that whatever historical setting brought about the Oxford movement, which I should mention was the growth of a certain political, politically liberal climate in England in the early 19th century. You had the Parliamentary Reform Act of 1832, I believe, and a changing status of the Church of England relative to the civil polity, if you will, and uh, as well as the crown. Uh, you had this reaction among certain members of the Church of England, which became the Oxford movement, the Tractarians, they're called. Now, I would argue that the original reason for this binary has, in some sense, outgrown its use and has left us with a legacy that leads to certain problems which manifested themselves in the debate over women's ordination. And it is only by going back before the, uh, just really trying to understand the roots of this errant binary and understand all the different causes and settings in which it's taken place can you really... Um, in my opinion, uh, try to understand anything. And I actually just want to go ahead and, in that sense, call attention once again to the original definition we gave of reparative reasoning, 
which is that it reconstructs the kinds of questions being answered and asked rather than taking the question for granting and attending only to the, the answers given. So by this I mean you trace back the progression of the errant binary between secular and Anglican and try to ask what was it that led people in different times and places down to 1992 to construe their beliefs in such terms. Now, what I did at the end of this is uh, use certain of these what I considered reparative arguments to point toward at least two sources of repair from within the Anglican tradition. The first is from Archbishop Ronald Rumsey, uh, who wrote in 1989 a book called Authority and Crisis. And in that book, he identifies a term from within Anglicanism called the consensus fidelium. And the consensus fidelium I will define as it is based from within Anglican tradition. And uh, what it is, is defined as the question of how the whole church receives the decisions of bishops, councils, and synods, such as the General Synod of 1992. And it originated as part of the report on the 1948 Lambeth Conference. And its meaning can be taken to resemble the following passage from that same report. Just as the dis discipline of the scientific method proceeds from the collection of data to the ordering of these data into formulae, the publishing of results obtained, and their verification by experience. So Catholic Christianity presents us with an organic process of life and thought in which religious experience has been and is described, intellectually ordered, mediated, and verified. Now that's from 1989, being that it's historically proximate for... Historical proximity is close to the specific debate in which I examined. Uh, but I'd like to also point to another potential source of repair, which was found in an argument, uh, or an article by Richard, not Richard Hooker, sorry, Stephen Sykes, which is on Richard Hooker. It's called, pardon me, Richard Hooker and the Ordination of Women, in which Sykes offers Richard Hooker as a guide by which to judge the arguments of the ordination debate. Sykes makes a similar point in his argument from the debate, similar to Ronald Runcie's, that is. Yet what sets this article apart is its greater exploration of the historical roots of the Aaron binary, as well as the role Hooker might play in, in mediating it. He writes the following with regard to Hooker. What we discover, then, in Hooker is an undeniably Anglican doctrine of the Church, which enables us to seriously reflect upon the implications for Church polity of the new understanding of the male-female relationship. It would not feel obliged to impose the same structure upon all cultures at the same time, and could enjoy what Hooker describes in a felicitous phrase as the manifold yet harmonious dissimilitude of those ways whereby his church honor is guided from age to age. Now, in conclusion, what I want to emphasize is that this method in no way tries to impose any external category necessarily upon the debate that took place in 1992. What we're trying to do is by diagramming the arguments that were given there and trying to examine the causes for what positions were given, we're trying to use resources from within Anglicanism to try to repair some of the sources of tension from within that community. Now, I haven't gotten into it, but I do believe that in other settings you can also address errant binaries that take place in any number of arguments uh, that take place, for example, between a religious community and secular society, or in any number of cases, really. If you want to look at the debate over healthcare legislation in the U.S. last year, uh, any number of errant binaries are given there. Any number of errant binaries were given in the election season leading up to November second, uh, I believe, was the election last Tuesday. Uh, so Charles Press can be a very useful tool in uh, any kind of debate, but uh, I think it's especially interesting in a religious one because you're dealing with 
um, questions, of, as Paul Tillich defined it, uh, of ultimate concern, of things that Richard Rorty would define as conversation stoppers. And you're, you're pretty much loosening that up and continuing the discussion, which I believe in in itself is a, is a good benefit. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, feel free to ask any questions you like. Yeah.